I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join us on our quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small. A podcast in search of all that moves us beyond words. Your host for this episode is Tenery Taylor. In 1910, 90% of Black Americans lived in the South. By 1970, only about half did. You'll know this as the Great Migration, when six million Blacks fled the injustices of Jim Crow. Threats of lynching, stolen voting rights, segregation. Millions sought to leave all of that behind for expanding opportunities in factories, in blue-collar jobs far away in the rapidly growing cities of the North, Midwest, and eventually West Coast. When that many people leave, abandoning their childhood hometowns, what effect does it have on those left behind? On parents, say, the first generation of Blacks born free who worked tirelessly to open up educational and employment opportunities locally, in the South, for their children. What happens to them when these children hop a train to New York City in a very different life? No more sitting at the back of the bus. On this episode of Constant Wonder, we have the story of one such family from Columbia, South Carolina. Anna Mariah Threewitz Garrett and her husband, Casper George Garrett, Busy parents of 10 children. Somehow, they also found time to make themselves into pillars of the community. He was active in the AME Church. He was active in the Republican Party. He was active in education. That's David Nicholson, the author of The Garrets of Columbia, a Black South Carolina family from slavery to the dawn of integration. Now, for Nicholson, the Garrets aren't just any family. They're his family. And though they had brushes with famous Black figures in American history, Booker T. Washington, Langston Hughes, they are regular people. But history is made by the daily choices of millions of people whose names never make the history books. Because the Garretts are very much a family who felt the fractures of that mass exodus from the South. Their story illustrates what happens when regular people reinvent themselves and by so doing, reinvent the world around them. Anna Mariah, as we'll discover, believed that her personal struggles would have an impact felt far beyond her own sphere. Maybe she wouldn't live to see it, but there would come a time when her children could be looked at simply as Americans, not as Blacks, not as colored, not as Negroes. The Garretts, Anna Mariah and Casper George, or CG, are David Nicholson's maternal great-grandparents, but David calls them simply Mama and Papa. I asked him, What was it like for Papa to be living in South Carolina, born as he was at the end of the Civil War, just one generation removed from slavery? Well, he did not know his father. His father left the plantation where he was raised before the end of the Civil War. The story that was passed down to him was that his father knew how to read and write, 
and his father would read the newspapers and he would tell the other slaves what was going on in the war. When it was discovered that this was what he was doing, he fled for his life because he might have been lynched had he not left. His mother really wanted him to make something of himself. She had been brought to South Carolina from Virginia when she was very young, like maybe three or four or five, and so never saw her parents after she was taken from them and and brought to South Carolina. But from somewhere, she got the idea that it was important that her son be educated. She worked as a hotel chambermaid, and she moved them from the country into the town of Lawrence so that he wouldn't have to walk so far to go to school. And he really took to the idea of education and to, oh, to he, school he, and learning. Absolutely. The stories passed down say that he would be sent out to plow the fields. His mother remarried, and her second husband was essentially a sharecropper. And so I found one sentence where Papa is listed as a farm laborer. And the story that's been passed down is that he read while he was plowing. Wait, wait, wait. How do you do that? How do you do that? (laughs) Well, right. (laughs) It must have made for some crooked furrows. And I could just imagine his uh, stepfather saying, boy, (laughs) you need to go out and do that field again. His stepfather doesn't seem to have appreciated the fact that his mother wanted him to get an education. And so how far did he go in his education? He got a law degree. He seems to have been fortunate in finding mentors. And so the pastor of his church seems to have said to him, you need to go to college. He went to Allen University in uh, Columbia, and he got a certificate to teach, but he went back and got a four-year degree and finished law school. Perhaps his pastor was just thinking, get certified as a teacher and then come back to Lawrence and you can teach. But he seems to have wanted more. Allen University didn't look like much back in Papa's day. In fact, photos from the 1920s, when Allen had already been around for 50 years, reveal that except for two tall and stately brick structures, most of the buildings are one-story, unpainted clapboard. Calling itself a university was really kind of aspirational. Uh, The majority of the students were elementary and middle school students, some of them pretty old, kids in their teens, maybe their early 20s. And there were only a handful of college-level students. But it had a law school for many years, and it graduated scores of men who became lawyers. Allen was established by the AME Church. Right, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And funded Throughout its existence? (laughs) Precariously funded, let's say, in the 1890s, the noughts, the tens, the twenties, the thirties. It basically lived year to year. In the summertime, whoever was president of the institution, they traveled throughout South Carolina preaching and giving talks and taking up collections, and that's how they raised the money to keep the school going. So it's to this Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina, that Papa arrives as a 20-year-old in 1885. He arrives with a big trunk because he knows he's going to be staying and going to school. And uh, he doesn't have any idea where the school is. And so 
he goes to a drayman. This is a guy who drives a cart and he carries people and their luggage from the station to wherever they're going in Colombia. And so he goes to the drayman and he says, uh, how much would, it, would you charge me to go to Allen? And the drayman quotes him a figure. And he says, well, how much would you charge me to carry my trunk and have me walk behind you? And the drayman looks at him and says, get in, I'll take you. Well, the drayman's name is Anderson Threewitz, and he was Mama Anna Mariah Threewitz's father. He gets home and he starts telling her, oh, I met this young man today and he came all the way from the country to go to Allen and he didn't have enough money and I took him there. And he apparently encounters Papa several times and comes back and he's telling stories about how wonderful Papa is and how you know energetic and hardworking he is. So then Anna Marie finally says, I don't want to hear about this guy anymore. <laughs> she meets him not knowing that this is the young man that her father has been talking about. And she brings him home to dinner. And that's when she finds out that this is the person her father has been talking about. <laughs> Papa and Mama would later go on to get married, of course, and as leaders in community life, would prove themselves to be hardworking and energetic, prizing decorum, intelligence, religiosity, all values that were actually codified into the student handbook at Allen University, where both Papa and Mama were students. The uh, Allen handbook says you need to take a bath every Saturday night. The Allen handbook says if your friend, you see your friend walking by your window, don't yell out at your friend. You're going to get 10 demerits if you do that. And if you're walking by the window and you see your friend hanging out of the building, don't yell at your friend because you'll get demerits from that. There are all these very specific rules and regulations about conduct. Uh, you couldn't play a musical instrument outside. They had a schedule that from the time they got up in the morning after they had brushed their teeth and, you know, washed their faces and then had breakfast, the day was filled. They went to chapel, they had classes, and then at the end, after dinner, there was another chapel service, and then they went to bed. What effect did that have on Papa? I was fortunate enough to find a little one-paragraph account of a return visit to Lawrence, his hometown, where he talked about meeting some people that he had known at Allen. And it's clear from that that he looked back fondly on his school days at Allen. It wasn't just all drudgery and struggling to survive. He actually had fun with his friends when he was at Allen. Allen University really provided a foundation for Papa's life. He must have felt, this is a chance to make a different kind of life for myself. I don't have to be a sharecropper like my stepfather. I don't have to work for white people in a menial capacity. He gave him a sense that he could do something different. Papa's career was so much different from his stepfather's, but there was a real tension in Allen University's declared goal to graduate educators, ministers, and lawyers. See, even though some men like Papa graduated from law school, they could not always practice in South Carolina. And some of them went to other states and practiced law where it was easier for a black man to practice. Couldn't practice because courts wouldn't allow them or they couldn't get the clientele? No, more the latter. 
from what I've read. I mean, he was admitted, my great-grandfather, to argue before the South Carolina bar. We have the certificate still in the, in the family. That says to me that, yes, they could have gone to court. But if you think about what it was like to be a Black person during segregation, if you got hauled up before the judge who was white and the jurors were probably white and the policeman who brought you was white, would you want a Black lawyer? Or would you want to maximize your chances of a fair trial by hiring a white lawyer? And that's what most people did. We'll describe Papa's career in just a moment, but it's important to cover another facet of the history of Allen University. The Allen Handbook, that guide to how many demerits you'd get for hollering out your dorm window, it reveals a real focus on propriety. David Nicholson, in his book, The Garrets of Columbia, introduced me to a term he uses, Afro-Victorians. Here's why that label applies so well to our story. I think Papa and Mama and others of their generation, you know, that generation, either newly out of slavery or born after the end of the Civil War, I think of them as people who had sort of inculcated those values. Thrift, religion, abstinence, which which seemed to me, you know, conservative kind of Victorian values. At that time, there must have been terrible stereotypes about Black people, about Black behavior. If you read some of the articles in the Columbia newspaper, The State, or the Columbia Record, articles that were written after the end of the Civil War, some of the stereotypes are just really ugly stereotypes. I think that the teachers must have said something to them like, you can't do much about what people think, but you have to prove them wrong by the way that you act, by the way that you conduct yourself, by the way you live your life. Allen University was, as we said, established by the AME Church, and the founding of that church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, was an act of self-determination. It's important to get a little history about this church because it will play an outsized role in Papa's life. The founding of this church goes back to an event in 1787 when a group of black worshipers led by Richard Allen and Absalom Jones went to worship in a white Episcopal church in Philadelphia. And they kneeled down to pray, not in the balcony, but on the main floor of the church. And one of the white warders comes up to them and says, you can't do this. Get up, leave. And so I think they finished praying, and I think Alan said something like, and so we left, and they were troubled with us no more. Alan goes on to form the AME Church as a church where Black people are welcome. Christianity, of course, had already had a long history among enslaved people. Many were Christians. Many did have services. They called them brush arbor services, where on Sundays they would go into the woods and they would have services. Maybe they were lucky enough to have a man there or a woman who could read and had read the Bible or somebody who just heard the stories. The end of slavery provided the chance for, you know, Black churches to come into their own. 
They didn't have to be afraid that if we're having a meeting in the woods, the master's going to come and he's going to break it up. They could create their own churches. In the case of the AME church, they could have their own pastors, their own lines of succession, et cetera, et cetera. Back to the Garrets in Columbia. Mama, Anna Maria Threewitz, graduated from Allen's Teacher College in 1886. Papa, C.G. Garrett, was admitted to the South Carolina Bar in the spring of 1890, and the two were married later that year. Their first child would arrive the following year. Mama did some work as a teacher in the early years of their marriage, but the bulk of her career outside the home would come in her middle age— And we will get to that. But first, let's follow Papa. He had his finger in a lot of different pies, okay? He was active in the AME Church. He was active in the Republican Party. He was active in education. One of Papa's first jobs out of college was as the principal of the Winsboro Colored Graded School, about 28 miles north of Columbia. Even though his day job was at the schoolhouse, he was never shy about getting involved in politics. In 1895, he introduced the black congressman George Washington Murray, who came through town on a speaking tour. He told the crowds that Murray, and this is a quote, was canvassing the state to arouse the Negro to the fact that his ballot was about to be taken away from him. That's one of those things that I look at and I say, wow. Did Papa consider what this might do? It's possible he was well enough respected in Winsboro so that this would not be held against him. It's also possible there was a substantial enough Republican presence in Winsboro that he could feel protected and he could feel safe saying these things. Murray and Papa, too, were prescient. At the end of 1895, in a culmination to what white supremacists would call the redemption of South Carolina, the state legislature rewrote the state constitution to effectively disenfranchise black voters. And Murray would be the last black congressman from South Carolina until 1993. Papa was in Winsboro for just four years, and then he returned to Allen University in Columbia, where he would work for two decades and where he wore many different hats. Oh, my gosh, he did everything. You know, a teacher of mathematics, teacher of rhetoric, a teacher of law. Uh, so that my conclusion is he taught wherever he was needed. And do we have a sense of the impact that he made on students personally? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's not testimony from lots of students, but many of those who left a record, like a man named George Singleton, were unstinting in their praise of Papa. Singleton is another significant African Methodist Episcopal figure, and he credited Papa with teaching him how to write. He said, I've gone to some of the finest white schools in the country, and they've praised my writing. Well, I learned it from Papa. As we saw in Winsboro, Papa did not limit his sphere of influence to the classroom. And the small city of Columbia was a space where an energetic, ambitious man could really have an impact. If there were no good places to be Black in South Carolina, then some places were better than others. 
And Columbia was one of those places where it was better. But there were lynchings within miles of Columbia, not in, in the county. Richland County seems to have been the one county in South Carolina where there was never a lynching. But in the surrounding counties, there were lynchings. I think that what that meant was that Black people found themselves in an environment where they could create a community, where they weren't constantly under siege, where they weren't constantly threatened. And so they could create a community that included many churches, two schools of higher education, an elementary school and a junior high school, and then lots of businesses as well. There were 13 black barbers, 21 hotels or restaurateurs, two fishmongers, two doctors, and the list goes on. This entrepreneurial spirit was on full display at the Colored State Fair, an event that Papa was an early advocate of. Most black people lived on farms, and a state fair was a way of celebrating black agricultural achievement. It was a way of, you know, who could bring in the biggest pumpkin (laughs) or, you know, whose corn had had the biggest yield or hog or the best looking mule. Now you have a state fair and maybe somebody comes there and he goes, wow, if I try this agriculture technique, I can grow bigger hogs or I can get a better yield, you know. And then the women could make quilts and pies and preserves and that sort of thing. And it was all part of this generation's desire to help uplift Black people. In addition to advocating for the Colored State Fair, Papa called for the establishment of a Black bank, and he even edited and published three newspapers. It wasn't always easy to make a go of it, but he was determined to make a mark in the community. Here he is making a plea to the readers of The Light newspaper, established in 1907, of which he was the sole editor. And you'll notice he doesn't pull any punches. He wrote, We have been and are trying to give you a strong, manly paper, touching war and race news, as well as uncovering hypocrisy and black scoundrelism in God's church and secular news in general. We ask that you pay us what you owe. If you don't want to read it, be honest, pay up, and stop. We will not be insulted. Papa was definitely direct. When he was angry with someone, he did not censure his pen. And we've got an example of that. But first, some more background on the AME Church, a church so central to Black life at this time. One of the hard things for me, was learning how much politicking was involved in the Amy Church. On the one hand, it's kind of shocking. On the other hand, this was an institution that Black people had control of. You know, there were no white people who said, this is how you should vote for a bishop. This is who you should vote for. This is how you should run your church. It was a church that Black people had had control of. In The Souls of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois explained the power of leaders in the Black church this way. The preacher is the most unique personality developed by the Negro on American soil. A leader, a politician, an orator, a boss, an intriguer, an idealist. All these he is, and never too, 
the center of a group of men. And so perhaps it's not surprising that there was that politicking because this was something that people had control of. And not only that they had control of, but there were so few opportunities elsewhere. You could not become ordained by and large in the Episcopal Church. You know, there were only a few black Catholic priests. Let me show you what this politicking looked like, at least as C.G. Garrett, Papa, practiced it. In his book, The Garretts of Columbia, David Nicholson shared an editorial Papa wrote in the black newspaper, The Christian Recorder, about a pastor named James Dean. Dean is running for office against one of Papa's intimates, a man named William David Chappelle, who would go on to become a bishop in the church. And as part of Papa's efforts to boost Chappelle and take Dean down a peg or two, he writes this horrific editorial in their Christian recorder where he calls Dean a briefless barrister, a cat's paw, a country judge, and a hired scavenger. I mean, (laughs) this is language that's just beyond the pale. If anything, in his own newspaper, The Light, Papa was even more unrestrained when he was criticizing somebody he didn't like or who thought was doing wrong. His newspaper, I'm assuming, was intended for the black community. Would he have ever turned that kind of invective on the white community? Oh, God. I think that would have been... (laughs) He then would have become the first black person lynched in Richland County. No, he didn't turn that kind of invective against the white community, but... He did write a piece in the Southern Sun where he noted the fact that the white schools in South Carolina got much, much more money than did the black schools. And he basically said to the legislators, if you really believe black people are inferior, then let's put this to the test. Give us an equal amount of money to fund our schools. And if at the end of a certain period, it turns out we haven't done anything with that money, then you can call us inferior. But give us the money because equal opportunity is the only way, you know, that people are going to progress. I think that was pretty bold, but he certainly would not have attacked somebody, a white person, the way he attacked James Dean in the Christian Recorder. This might be a good opportunity for you to quote your favorite line from one of his obituaries. Oh, (laughs) let's see. The most respected, disliked man in South Carolina. (laughs) And and that's not the exact quote. Respected, disliked is is right. But they were talking about in Black South Carolina during his lifetime, the most respected, disliked man. I love that line because it seems to sum up who Papa was. Having heard a little bit about his opinions on scoundrelism in the church, we have to talk about the relationship with Chappelle only because it seems like it influenced his career trajectory. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I think it did more than influence it. I think it derailed it. I say in the book that it may be too much to call him and Chappelle friends, so I call them allies in the struggle for racial uplift. Chappelle is about eight years older, I think. They wind up being at Allen University at the same time, Papa decides to go to law school. Chappelle decides that he wants to be a preacher. And so he becomes ordained, and he sets about rising through the hierarchy of the AME church. Chappelle 
baptized my uh, grandmother, Maddie, Papa and Mama's oldest daughter. And at some point, they have a falling out. The details of what happened are not clear. But kind of reading between the lines, Papa may have been upset that Chappelle didn't support him when he was running for office in the AME church. Because one of Papa's contemporaries said that no man did more for the election of Bishop Chappelle than did Papa. And so I think Papa could rightfully have expected Chappelle's support for an office within the AME church editorship of uh, the AME church review and or the presidency of Allen. And Papa didn't get either post. About that time, he ceases being affiliated with Allen. The context seems to be that he attacked Chappelle and the reason he attacked Chappelle was because he was upset that Chappelle had not supported him. I have found an account of a church meeting where they voted to censure Papa because of his unwarranted attacks on Chappelle. And this is about the time that Papa is let go from Allen. He's been at Allen at this point for over 20 years. So right. what, is, what does he do? Well, he sort of casts about. Um, he sells insurance. He's a notary public. Um, his fortunes sort of go up and down according to who is bishop and who's running Allen. If there's somebody who likes him, then, you know, he's taken back into the fold. The newspapers that Papa devoted his time to on and off for a quarter century, they never provided enough to live on. He couldn't even count on breaking even there. But what happens is it gives a chance for Mama to come into her own. Papa's not working, just basically getting by. And she is essentially forced to support the family. That's David Nicholson, author of The Garrets of Columbia, a Black South Carolina family from slavery to the dawn of integration. We've seen how one man, just one generation removed from slavery, seized opportunities for education to become a teacher, newspaper editor, activist within his community and within the AME Church, which had so much power to influence Black lives. When Papa's career faltered, though, Mama, David Nicholson's great-grandmother, stepped up to support the family. In just a moment, more about C.G. and Anna Mariah Garrett and the community they helped build in the decades after emancipation. I'm Tenery Taylor, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. Anna Mariah Garrett, Mama, had done some teaching back when her husband, C.G., Papa, was the principal at Winsboro Colored Graded School. Even though female teachers were supposed to be single, but, you know, her husband was the principal. Of course, she was too busy to teach during the family's first couple of decades in Columbia, raising nine of her own children, plus one adopted caboose at the end. However, when Papa's career falters, she, at age 45, steps up to support the family. That's when she goes back to teaching and she becomes a supervisor of the rural colored schools in Richland County and really comes into her own. She supervises the construction of at least three schools. She oversees more than 60 schools, including far-flung remote one-room schoolhouses. 
she has so many schools that she needs to visit during the course of a week that when she's 50 years old, she learns how to drive, which I think is a pretty remarkable, <laughs> remarkable thing, especially that she learns to drive at a time when there are very few paved roads, something like 16 miles of paved roads in Richland County. And, and the roads are so bad that, you know, you're driving at 10 or 15 miles an hour and the roads are rutted because the cartwheels have carved ruts into the, the ground and the distance is not the same as the car wheels. So they're bumpy, bone-jarring rides. She was a remarkable woman. If Mama seems like a scrappy, take-charge kind of woman, I'm not going to argue with that description. But remember the term Afro-Victorians that David Nicholson explained earlier? Well, Mama definitely fits that bill, too. Mama was kind of cantankerous. She had a very developed sense of the proprieties. When her youngest daughter was graduating from college, she invited the senior class to her house. And the newspaper said that they had gathered and there had been games and dancing. And then the next week, the newspaper ran a correction saying there had been no dancing. And I'm sure Mama <laughs> called up or wrote to the editor of the newspaper and said, there was no dancing in my house. <laughs> you know I would not allow dancing in my house. Her children called her Queen Anne, not to her face. And they called her something else to like Miss, Miss Persnickety or something like that. She was just very aware of the proprieties. Mama had opinions on what was going on in the larger world, just as Papa did. Let's hear about a letter she wrote, but never sent. Now, this was just after the end of the First World War, when Black soldiers who had served their country were coming home. And Mama read in Columbia's morning newspaper, The State, a newspaper that, by the way, is still in circulation today. Well, one morning, she opened its pages to discover a poem addressing race relations after the war. It was titled, Our Soldiers at Home, written by the former mayor of Columbia, a man named Wade Hampton Gibbous. And his first two names are significant because Wade Hampton was somebody who had fought in the Civil War and he led what's called the Redemption of South Carolina, which is where the Black legislators are thrown out of the state house, the Constitution is rewritten, and segregation is enforced. So Gibbous writes a poem essentially telling the Black soldiers who are coming back, nothing's going to change. You're not going to have the right to vote. If you want to live here in the South, you're going to have to live exactly the way you did before you left. This is significant because He's writing about the time of what's called Red Summer, which is where all these Black soldiers come back and they meet with incredible resistance from whites. One soldier is killed for refusing to take off his uniform. And the violence against Black people takes place all across the country, including in South Carolina. So Gibbous writes this poem, which is published in the state, warning Black soldiers things are not going to change. The end of Gibbous's poem goes like this. The Negro, still the Negro must be. He may fight the hordes of Germany. He may follow his leaders beyond the sea. Yet if in the South he choose to dwell, he must keep to himself and bear him well. No race shall rule 
the Saxon free. And my great-grandmother, Mama, writes a letter to the state, and she writes a poem in response. The Negro now, our brother must be. He has fought the hordes of Germany. He had followed his leaders beyond the sea. And if in the South he still chooses to dwell, we must help him to bear himself up well. One race shall all Americans be. So Mama flips Gibbous's lines on their head, using the same rhythm and structure to call for racial equality. She had this faith, I think, that maybe she wouldn't live to see it, but there would come a time when she could be looked at simply, or her children could be looked at simply as Americans, not as Blacks, not as colored, not as Negroes. And I think it's sad she did not send the poem to the newspaper, but I think I understand why. She's about to get appointed as supervisor of rural schools, and I think she probably decided it's probably better to exercise discretion here than than to, you know, put this poem out and risk not getting this appointment. I still think it's a remarkable document, and I'm very glad I have it. Mama, in that school's supervisor role, did more than just look in on school administration and curriculum. She, like Papa, was invested in improving the self-sufficiency and economic standing of Black Americans. When she was supervisor of the colored rural schools, Mama took a course in home economics. Someone had said to her, if you take this course, I can get you a job teaching home economics. But the job was going to pay less than she made as school supervisor. But she did it anyway. And she told her daughter, I'm doing this so I can better help my people. Mama's home economics was about going into those rural communities and teaching farm wives better ways of canning, better ways of cleaning their houses, better ways of taking care of their children. And it was all part of this generation's desire to help uplift Black people. You may be familiar with the Green Book that identified restaurants, hotels, gas stations that would serve Black travelers. Well, Mama liked driving so well that she would take a road trip with a girlfriend of hers eight years before this Bible of Black travel was published. And a friend had said she wanted to go to Tuskegee and asked her to come along to share the driving. And so Mama said that she would. And again, this is way before interstates. This is way before most roads are paved. And so they're likely going for the vast majority of the time on rutted roads. If that's not bad enough, they can't stop to eat at restaurants. They can't say, oh, it's five o'clock, I'm tired, let's find a hotel. You know, most restaurants are not going to serve them. Most restaurants are white only. Most hotels, the same thing. The first day, they drive a really long time. And the reason they drive such a long time is because they're going to stay with friends. It's the only place that they can stay. They just sort of took those things as a given and they worked around them. I marvel at this whenever I think about these two women. And one more marvel from Mama. When she died, she was in possession of quite a bit of real estate, including four homes and a 175-acre farm that she had bought for Papa. 
Mama and Papa's generation, born just after the Civil War, came of age in a divided nation where many white Southerners were clinging to the power they'd had before the war. And freeborn Blacks, just one generation removed from slavery, fought hard for respect and achievement for status. But their children would be in elementary school at the turn of the 20th century. What kind of a world would they live in? The people David Nicholson calls the Afro-Victorians of Columbia, South Carolina. They had built a thriving community, but they couldn't vote. Lynchings were a reality just over county lines. No reliable hospitality industry to allow comfortable travel long distance. The segregation of Jim Crow was still their reality. These children would weigh all of that combined with their parents' high expectations for achievement, and compare it to life outside the state, where a dynamic era of urbanization was underway. In just a moment here on Constant Wonder, we'll follow the Garrett children into a new century. I'm Tenery Taylor. David Nicholson, in his book, The Garretts of Columbia, A Black South Carolina Family from Slavery to the Dawn of Integration, refers to Anna Mariah and C.G. Garrett as world builders. What kind of pressure does that put on the children, though? Mama raised 10 children. Maddie, Ralston, Tap, Maceo, Colin, Marion, Ruth, Mills, Christopher, and Francis. And as we've noted, Nicholson calls her an Afro-Victorian. It seems to me like there was quite a weight of expectation on those children, and I asked the author about that. I think you're right. And I think most of them basically said, I don't want to live with the weight of those expectations. I would not have been surprised if, given that Papa was a lawyer and Mama was a school supervisor— I would not have been surprised if one or more of their children had become lawyers and wanted to become a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But most did not. A couple worked for the post office. Uh, a couple worked as Pullman porters. There was one daughter who was kind of a near-do-well who eventually settled down and ran a daycare center. One daughter got a PhD and taught French. But I think they just looked at their parents and they saw... Well, they saw what Papa had suffered trying to do the right thing, and they just said, I don't want that. Most of them left the South as part of the Great Migration, and they settled in Washington, Philadelphia, and New York. It can be incredibly hard for mothers to see their children move off to some distant new place. I asked David Nicholson about the years starting in the 19-teens, when it appeared that most of Mama's offspring were determined to put Columbia and the South in their rearview mirror. How did Mama take it? She wrote them letters. Well, she wrote her daughter letters telling her daughter, if you want to work teaching, I can get you a job teaching. More than that, she told cautionary tales. Girls who had gone north and came back pregnant and wouldn't tell anybody who the father was, or a boy who, you know, left and went to New York. And when he came home, she said he had finally learned that New York is not home. She wanted them all to come home. <laughs> she wanted them to come home. But a community like Black Columbia can be nurturing at the same time that it's confining. 
it was too confining. They wanted different kinds of opportunities. The wonderful thing about living in New York is nobody cares what you do. <laughs> there was a little bit of heartbreak along these lines with the 10th child who was adopted, Frances. Right. I wonder if you could tell us her story because when I read it, I really felt this clash of worlds that you're talking about. The outside, the New York world, and the heavy weight of mama's expectations. It's one of the sad stories in the family. She was Ralston, one of Papa and Mama's sons. She was his out-of-wedlock daughter. I don't know anything about the mother, but Mama and Papa said that they would raise Francis as their own. And Francis doesn't appear a lot in Mama's letters, but when she does, there is very often the tinge of disappointment that Francis isn't as smart as her other kids. She's not doing as well in school you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's probably not surprising that Frances finds a boyfriend and she gets pregnant. I think she probably just wanted somebody to love her. And this is one of the few times when I felt, Mama, I wish you hadn't done that. Mama sends her away. She sends her up to New York to be with her father. Frances really felt Mama's censure, and, and she writes about it to other family members. Yes, yes, yes. She did write to Mills saying that she was apologizing. She was sorry. She wanted, you know, Mama to talk to her, to recognize her. I don't know that Mama did. I haven't found any any letters from Mama. And Frances uh, dies giving birth. It's just a sad, a sad story. Let's talk briefly about TAP. There are 10 children. We cannot cover them all, but I want to cover a couple of them. I want to talk about Tap. Mama calls him especially favored. Why why would she have said that? Well, because of the opportunities that they afforded him. He went to Columbia uh, University in New York, but he seems only to have lasted a year. And then he came back and he taught school. He's one of the ones I would like to have known because, like me, he wanted to write. And his chapter is called Tap's Almost Success. Tap seems to have made the acquaintance of Langston Hughes in New York. And he wrote a play, a musical called Gooford. And Hughes contributed some lyrics uh, to it. Found lots of newspaper references in newspapers to this musical. And I found that there had even been a, a tryout to attract backers. But that was the extent of it. Tap's hopes must have risen and then just crashed. Nobody wanted to produce the play. <sighs> I'm sorry, I get a little sad thinking about it. <laughs> I get a little sad thinking about it. Um, and then he went back to work at the post office and spent you know, the rest of his life sorting mail in the post office and died early in the 1950s. His uh, sister Mills who became the French teacher, said that he continued to write, but he was so disappointed, he just didn't send his stories out. So this life that the children wanted, um, many more opportunities than Columbia, South Carolina afforded, but many more risks. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, though, I'm glad Tap dared. He could have stayed in Columbia, and he could have taught school. He might have become principal or vice principal of a school. 
but he wanted something more. And even though, you know, his play was never produced, I still am glad he tried, that he took the risk. The Garretts were, of course, like all families, with moments of hope and triumph and lots of disappointment and struggle along the way. But at this point, we're right at this painful moment of splintering felt in families throughout the South, where waves of people rejected the measures of success laid out by that first generation born after emancipation, who really had achieved so much in the Jim Crow South. If many of their children opted for blue-collar work in the cities of the North, could not Mama and Papa congratulate themselves on having raised children who were unafraid to spread their wings and seek a better life in the way that they themselves defined it? I see that there in Tap's story. Progress comes from regular people risking, failing, sometimes succeeding, and making their own way. There is one more child I'd like to talk about, and David Nicholson has referenced her a couple of times. She's the one who earned a PhD in French, number eight out of the 10 children, Naomi Mills Garrett. Her family called her Mills. She seems to have been the one who hewed most closely to Papa and Mama's aspirations. And I asked David Nicholson if he agreed. Oh, absolutely. She did well in school when she was in college. She did well enough in French so that when the French teacher had to take a leave of absence, she taught the French teacher's classes. And she was determined enough so that even though when she had to support herself by teaching school, in the summertime, she would go to graduate school and take classes towards a master's degree. You talk about daring to risk. She discovered during World War II that she could make a lot more money working for the government. So she went to Washington and she went to work, I think, for the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. As a government employee, Mills made what she described as the enormous salary of $115 a month. After about a year of saving up, she returned to teaching, this time a job in Baltimore. And after just one year there, she was granted tenure, unprecedented at her school. All along the way, though, Mills clung to a determination to travel abroad. Not surprising at all, given her language interests. She got the chance to go to Haiti. The government sort of wanted to make friends with nations around the world during the war. Coincidentally, the Haitian government had decided that it wanted its elementary and junior high and high school students to take English. So they went to the U.S. and they asked for English teachers. And the U.S. sent, I think, 10 men and women to teach English in Haiti, and Mills was one of them. In her life, perhaps more than in the lives of her siblings, you see this tension between the safe and the unknown. In large part, she can't decide whether to go because the school system in Baltimore won't give her a leave of absence. One of the things that I say in the book is that they had to have looked at Papa's life 
and how things changed for Papa when Papa dared to challenge authority. And I think that many of them must have decided it's better to be safe. And I think Mills embodies that contradiction. She really wants to go live overseas. She'd actually left her teaching job in South Carolina and gone to work for the government because she wanted to save money to go to Europe. But she makes this choice just about the time that World War II is about to break out, which is not a great time to go traveling to Europe. Now she has this chance. It's not Europe, but she has this chance to live in Haiti. She finally does decide, well, even if they're not going to give me a leave of absence, I'm going to go. And she does go to Haiti. She spends about two years in Haiti. And it seems to have been this wonderful time for her. You know, she's living in this different culture. She's making new friends. She's getting the chance to practice her French. <laughs> she discovers the subject of her dissertation because when she comes back, she goes to Columbia University and she enrolls in a doctoral program. She writes a, a dissertation about Black poets in Haiti. It's called The Renaissance of Haitian Poetry. It was published by Présence Africaine in Paris. And for many years, it was a standard text on the subject. So she discovered her life's work, if you will, while she was there. So she goes to Columbia, gets a PhD. Did she ever aspire to teach at a university like that? She didn't think she could. And in terms of Columbia, I think she was right. She finished her coursework, I think, in 1947. But I believe it was not till the mid-60s that Columbia hired its first Black professor. So she could not have taught at Columbia at that time. It would be interesting to know what she would have done if she'd had the opportunity. I think on the one hand, she had this sense of obligation, the sense of uplift that she'd inherited from Mama and Papa. So she went to teach at a historically Black university. It was then called West Virginia State College, and now it's West Virginia State University. She taught there for many, many, many years. And I think it probably factored into her decision that she was going to take what she had gained and she was going to pass it on to other Black people. Did you know her? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think she probably inherited some of her mother's uprightness. She was very formal <laughs> and a little bit strict. <laughs> I'm sure that in the classroom, kids just settled down and listened. <laughs> they didn't give her a lot of grief. Mills never married, and her teaching schedule allowed her a lot of time to travel, which had always been an aspiration of hers. She became the um, foreign student advisor at West Virginia State. Thai students would come there, probably because the tuition was cheap. She became the advisor, and then they would invite her to visit in Thailand. And she was also, by virtue of her dissertation, her contacts in Haiti, she was invited to African world festivals throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s. One last question we often ask our guests is just about the concept of wonder, because it's something that we look for everywhere. The sense of wonder that I have is about what kept these people going. So much of what happens to us in our lives seems to be luck. I heard a story about how Papa was invited to join Booker T. Washington when Booker T. Washington took a train tour of South Carolina in, I think, 1906. 
So I was telling this friend about it years and years ago, and she kind of sniffed and she said, well, when your great-grandfather was on that train with Booker T. Washington, my great-grandmother was on her hands and knees scrubbing some white lady's floor. And I didn't know what to say. I was just kind of, ah! I've been thinking about that lately, and I've been thinking her great-grandmother did what she needed to do in order to take care of her family. Papa was lucky. His mother scrubbed floors in a hotel, but she did it so he could get an education. And so my sense of wonder comes from all of these people who did all of these things out of necessity and the strength that they possessed in order to keep going. That's something that I wonder at. That's something that I marvel at. I hope I'm not the end, but I'm in many ways a fruition of the things that Papa and Mama dreamed of. I had opportunities that they probably never thought they could have. That's David Nicholson, who shares his family's stories in the book, The Garrets of Columbia, a Black South Carolina family from slavery to the dawn of integration. This episode was produced by me, Tenery Taylor, with help from Marcus Smith and Brian Barba. Sound design by James Call. There's one more story from David Nicholson, a special one that informs what David thinks of himself. We want to include it here for you as a bonus. It's the story of Papa's great-grandfather, a man referred to in the family as the African. He is a man who was enslaved and who bought his freedom in 1819. David's mother, Ruth, was able to locate a deed of manumission for a Dublin hunter. And the details they uncovered about his life match details about the African handed down in the family. Dublin hunter had bought his own freedom for $1,200 and subsequently bought the freedom of a woman and her two daughters. Nicholson assumes that these were his wife and children. Unfortunately, the story does not have a happy ending. He lived his life as a free man, but he was unable to free his wife and his children. So just because he bought them did not emancipate them? No, it did not. If he had been able to do it earlier, he would have been able to emancipate them. But he did it after the law had changed. There was another tragedy when Dublin Hunter died. Not only were the two daughters he'd purchased still considered slaves, the awful vagaries of the law were such that additional children born subsequent to his purchase of his wife were also considered to be Hunter's slaves, meaning that all of his children were actually legal property. So when he died, he owed money, and they were sold to satisfy his debts. And um, that's unfortunate, but it also meant that I was able to discover what happened to one of his children. And this man became a sort of a rarity. He bought his freedom twice. He was sold to satisfy Dublin Hunter's debts, and he reached an agreement with his new owner that he would buy his freedom. 
And when his new owner died, he still owed money. And so his wife, who is a free woman of color, took over the debt. They were lent money by a white landowner. And one of the interesting things that I find, I can imagine some readers are going to smack their heads when they come on to this part. But when the Civil War ended, he still owed $200 to this man who had lent him the money to buy his freedom. And he paid it. He was under no legal obligation, but he paid it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this was common sense. He was going to stay where he was, and he knew that he was going to be dependent on the goodwill of the people that he lived around. And so it made sense. He was remembered after his death as, you know, an honorable man who lived by his word, whose word could be trusted. The story of the African and his son come in chapter one of the book, The Garrets of Columbia. I asked Nicholson why it was important to start the book that far back in time when most of the story is about the Garrets, a few generations removed from that family. It was about, I guess, claiming a place in history. Dublin Hunter is the first person that I can point to and I can say, this is an ancestor. This is the person from whom my citizenship derives. So that's that's why. So that just kind of begs the question, were you feeling um, disconnected to your citizenship as an American? Well, it has to do with the peculiarities of my situation in my life. I was born in the United States, but my mother married a man from Jamaica who would come to Howard University to study dentistry. And after he graduated, we went to Jamaica, myself, my sister, and uh, my mother and father. And we lived there for eight or nine years. The whole time that I was there, I felt I'm not really Jamaican, I'm really an American. And then I came back to the United States, and there were all these things that were just completely unfamiliar. I can remember eating a hot dog for the first time. I can remember eating peanut butter for the first time. And so I've always felt this sense, you know, am I Jamaican or am I an American? That's the reason that I started with Dublin Hunter, with the African. Years ago, when my son was in elementary school, he's told his teachers some of these stories. And so I went to talk to his classes. And I would talk to the classes and I would say, okay, he paid so many thousand dollars for his freedom. How many candy bars do you think that is? And it turns out to be like 200,000 candy bars. You know, I figured that was what kids could, could relate to. I'm just amazed when I think about it. I'm just amazed at what the willpower that it must have taken for him to buy his freedom and then to buy the freedom of his wife and his children. There were at least three other children whom he could not purchase. And in the book, I muse about what it must have felt like to watch those children be led off by their, their new owners. You know, I think this is a story people need to read. It's not necessarily a new story, but I also think it's a story that we need to keep hearing. To Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.